This week, Purdue confirmation order vacated over Sackler third-party releases. Intel sat playing confirmed. All your holdings files, Chapter 11. Reorg publishes analysis of talent debt. Hello and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Julian Boulan will be joining me for the Week in Review. For this week's Deep Dive, we feature a webinar replay where Reorg's municipals team discusses current trends in higher education finance, tackling subjects like recent workouts, student housing, new issuances, and the evolution of higher education following the COVID-19 pandemic. It's Friday, December 17th. Thursday evening, U.S. District Judge Colleen McMahon issued a decision in the appeals of the Purdue Pharma Plan Confirmation Order directing that the plan confirmation order and the advance order authorizing certain plan implementation steps must be vacated because Judge Wiles' grant of third-party releases of the Sackler family and the plan lacks statutory authority. Among a number of notable discussions in the opinion, Judge McMahon reviewed the releases de novo in light of a conclusion that third-party releases in the plan are not sufficiently core matters to be finally adjudicated by bankruptcy courts. With respect to the third-party releases, Judge McMahon stated that, quote, the bankruptcy code does not authorize such non-consensual debtor releases, not in its expressed text, which is conceded, not in its silence, which is disputed, and not in any section or sections of the bankruptcy code. Judge McMahon rejected what many had viewed as relatively settled law in the Second Circuit, that such releases could be approved in exceptional circumstances. Instead, Judge McMahon explained that the Second Circuit has only identified the question as open back in 2005, but that the Second Circuit has not yet had a chance to analyze the issue. Judge McMahon commented that the only guidance that has been available to lower courts is that because statutory authority is questionable and such releases can be abused, they should be granted sparingly and only in, quote, unique cases, a position that Judge McMahon explicitly rejects, finding that, quote, there is no principal basis for acting on questionable authority in rare or unique cases, especially because the U.S. Supreme Court has recently held in Jevic that there is no rare case rule in bankruptcy that allows a court to trump the bankruptcy code. Purdue has already vowed to appeal. Judge Keith Phillips confirmed the Intelsat Debtors Chapter 11 plan on Thursday after the debtors' announcement that they settled the objection of the ad hoc group of Intelsat SA convertible note holders. This morning, Friday, December 17th, the debtors filed a fourth amended plan incorporating the terms of the settlement. The settlement with the convertible note holders was preceded on Wednesday, December 15th, by the resolution of the Intelsat Jackson crossover group and the official committee of unsecured creditors' objections to the debtors' proposed makehole settlement. The court entered an order approving that makehole settlement on Thursday. The settlement with the convertible note holder group will give holders of the 4.5% convertible notes who are not subject to a waiver of incremental recoveries an additional $25 million in cash, bringing the total recovery for this group to an estimated 21.5%. The settlement does not, however, impact recoveries for convertible holders who are subject to the waiver, which remain at an estimated 12.4% of principal. In terms of aggregate value, the non-waiver group would receive $58.9 million on $273.2 million in face value of notes, while the waiver group would receive $16 million on $129.3 million of face value. The ad hoc hold code group waiver will apply to the incremental recovery, implying that the hold code group has waived any incremental recoveries above $49 million, or roughly the contemplated plan recovery, but would begin to participate in recoveries again above $145 million. Additionally, the incremental recovery will be excluded from tabulation of cash on hand used for purposes of allocating professional fees. As a result, it appears that the $25 million incremental cash recovery goes directly to convertible note holders other than those note holders in the hold co group, boosting recoveries for convert group members to 21.5% of principal compared with a recovery of roughly 12% of principal for hold co group members. 
All Your Holdings Limited, a Yoel Goldman-owned real estate development and management company whose portfolio includes approximately 1,640 residential units and 69 commercial units in Brooklyn, New York, with an aggregate net book value in excess of $1.17 billion, filed for Chapter 11 protection this week in the Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of New York. According to the first day declaration, All Your CEO and CFO, Asaf Ravid, all year, like many real estate businesses, has struggled to service its debt as its revenue has declined because of the impact of COVID-19 on residential and commercial rental income streams. Ravid said that despite the recent modest uptick in the New York real estate market, the debtor's current and projected revenues remain insufficient to service its debt. All year says it has garnered substantial interest from potential investors and, with the consent of its bondholders, is advanced in selecting and finalizing an exit transaction with the purchase of the equity of the debtor. However, the debtor faces potential litigation in multiple jurisdictions in light of its insolvency and defaulted bonds. The debtor was hit with a $37 million judgment in New York State Supreme Court shortly before the petition date, resulting from outstanding confessions of a judgment that sole economic shareholder Yoel Goldman unilaterally entered into on behalf of the debtor without consulting All Year's board. Debtor has approximately $800 million of outstanding funded debt, consisting of $461 million in borrowings under Series C&E bonds secured by certain assets owned by indirect subsidiaries, and $338 million in unsecured borrowings on the debtor's Series B and D bonds. The Series E bonds were secured by a mortgage on one of two buildings owned by the parents' indirect subsidiaries, Evergreen Garden 1 and Evergreen Gardens 2, which was sold through a bankruptcy process. Additionally, the company has approximately $760 million in property-level mortgage debt secured by the parent debtor subsidiaries and issued by various U.S. lenders. The debtor has not yet filed first-day motions. Judge Martin Glenn has scheduled an initial case conference in the case for January 10, 2022, at 2 p.m. Eastern. This week, Reorg published an analysis of Talon Energy's newly disclosed additional terms to its first lien commodity accordion facility, facility will be used primarily to fund elevated commodity working capital requirements during the winter period, repay $238 million of borrowings outstanding under the Talon Energy Supply Revolving Credit Facility, fund up to $200 million for working capital, and for other general corporate purposes. Talon also updated its cash flow forecast for the fourth quarter and for 2022, though the company did not update pricing and operating assumptions. The borrowers under the $848 million first lien facility maturing September 2024 are Talon Energy Marketing LLC and Susquehanna Nuclear LLC, and the lender group is led by Golden Tree Asset Management and Silver Point Finance. According to a press release issued Wednesday, December 15th, additional lenders include Apollo Capital Management, Diameter Capital Partners, and Owl Creek Asset Management. If you would like to access Reorg's in-depth coverage of Talon, please reach out to a Reorg representative. Top red stories this week included Amigo provides second scheme proposal to redress creditors, group required to show creditors had enough information to explain compromise of claims, insolvency no longer alternative to preferred scheme, FCA approval required. Ontario Superior Court of Justice awards Cineplex damages of $1.23 billion Canadian. Cineworld to appeal decision. Court opinion review, post-reorg windfalls, the Sanchez strategy, the Lime Tree Bay sale process, interlocutory appeal issues, and independent future claims representatives. Judge Swain identifies materially problematic aspects of plan of adjustment, invites debtors to submit plan modifications, or to show cause why confirmation should not be denied. Now here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Good morning, all, and welcome to the next of the last week of what has been a very interesting year. Monday, December 20th, earnings from Carnival Corp. in a second day and final dip hearing in Alto Maipo. Tuesday, December 21st, earnings from Rite Aid, a sale hearing in Lime Tree, and an omnibus hearing in Stoneway Capital. Wednesday, December 22nd, a CIC AOD cash-out hearing in Cedro, and an interim fee and omnibus hearing in Alpha Holding. 
And that's pretty much it. Back to New York. For this week's Deep Dive, we feature a webinar replay where Reorg's Municipals team discusses current trends in higher education finance. Deputy Managing Editor Seth Brumby, Legal Analyst Mike Giappone, and Kristen Going, partner in McDermott, Will & Emery, tackle subjects like recent workouts, student housing, new issuances, and the evolution of higher education following the COVID-19 pandemic. All right. I think with that, I've seen the participant count slow down a little bit. We'll just go ahead and jump right in. Uh, my name is Seth Brumby. I'm the deputy editor of America's Municipals with Reorg Research. Joining me today is Mike Ripone. He is a senior analyst with Reorg Research and Kristen Going, a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery. Today we'll be discussing student housing, building boom or bust. Um, as we all know, graduate and undergraduate students are back in class, uh, but the outlook for student housing is still uncertain. Uh, we'll be diving in today into the life cycle of student housing from everything from the primary market pipeline to distressed situations and ways to analyze these situations. We'll go over these topics very broadly. And if you have questions, feel free to submit them over the Q&A. We'll be taking them at the end of the webinar. Um, and with that, um, why don't we go to the next slide? All right, the agenda, we're gonna have introduction here, um, higher education at a high level. This is really just gonna be looking at the macro considerations for what's going on. These things include like enrollment for actual universities. We're gonna then move into some credit considerations just in the ways that we can interpret what kind of enterprise a student housing project might be and its affiliations or lack thereof with universities. Um, we'll also look at the pipeline for distress um, and some current situations with restructuring before taking Q&A. Next slide, please. Okay, so the macro considerations for the market. Um, Mike, I know that you've done a lot of research uh, on this particular topic. Um, the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center came out with some preliminary numbers in September. They should be coming out with some updated numbers with a broader uh, sample set, but can you talk a little bit about what we've learned so far uh, following the pandemic? Yeah, um, thanks, Seth. Uh, the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center is a nonpartisan uh, organization that collects enrollment data from colleges across the country, and it's reporting that uh, enrollment has declined six and a half percent since 2019. So that's over the you know 18, 20 months or so of the pandemic, um, and it's it's um, the enrollment decline is shared uh, amongst private, uh, not-for-profit, not uh, two-year, four-year community colleges. It's kind of across the board. Um, and it's, it was split evenly uh, from fall 2019 to 2020 at, at about 3.5%. And then um, another, you know, three and a quarter or so from 2020 to 2021. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if you kind of parse the data a little bit, you'll see freshman enrollment has declined. Um, it was something around the order of 9% uh, 2019 to 2020, and it's gone down another 3% uh, this past fall, but um, it hasn't stabilized. So, you know, this is kind of like a long-term, not, you know, broader than just remote learning kind of problem. It feels almost like a secular decline when we talk about enrollment, because as we look across the larger demographics in the U.S. and who's enrolling in schools, um, never mind who might be graduating, we're just really looking at who's entering schools. 
Um, there's there's also some serious considerations there, maybe just tying back to the general birth rate in the U.S., which dipped below replacement rate. Can you talk a little bit about how the general you know picture of American population is is contributing to the enrollment declines? Yeah, the thing about birth rate that's interesting is um, it's um, it's declining and it has been for some time. But um, if you look at the numbers, it really the, the latest dip didn't really um, happen until 2004 seven or so. Um, and those, those kids aren't even yet college age. So, um, the declining birth rate that's happening that has been happening over the last 13, 14 years is going to, uh, contribute to further enroll, uh, enrollment declines. If you, you know, if you, if you, uh, believe that the drop in birth rate is leading to this problem. Um, and I guess another demographic, uh, point that's sort of interesting is, um, a large share of the enrollment decline is, has been um, from male students as opposed to female students. So, um, you know, just, just kind of broadly, those are, those are the trends that uh, we're seeing in the data. And the cost, meanwhile, for higher education has gone up. Um, as we look at tuition, um, it's increased across all types of institutions, whether they are public or private um, over the past 10 to 20 years. Um, I think the National Center for Education Statistics um, noted that if we look just kind of at an aggregate average of the price of higher education, it's 20, it was 28,000 um, most recently, I think according to 2020 numbers, um, but 20 years ago, um, back in the early aughts, that number was closer to 12. So that's a, that's a pretty big, increase in the cost of education. Meanwhile, as we know, student loan um, had topped the $1.7 trillion mark. So, you know, young adults um, without much of a career history, without much income are taking on more and more debt to attend private school, or excuse me, to attend higher education. Um, the Some of the numbers that I saw was that uh, the monthly payment is $433 um, for many uh, um, adults exiting college. That's actually lower over the past 10 years, largely due to the low rate environment that we have. But you know, once you start seeing a rise um, in, in, in borrowing rates, that amount is going to go up. So it seems to me we have this confluence of you know, a decline in the supply plus um, an increase in the cost of attendance. And I, and I get the sense that many young adults are kind of doing the cost benefit analysis as they should. Is it really worth me to take on this amount of debt? Um, and as a result, this might actually impact um, the, the, the supply of uh, people that need um, student housing. Um, with that, we'll go to the next slide and we'll have Kristen talk a little bit about the types of issuing entities because these aren't just dormitories attached to universities, which is what I'm used to. I remember when I was in college, you know, I had a like a 10 by 10 cell and a concrete floor and maybe a closet. And these days um, it's, it's a lot different. Kristen, can you maybe talk to us about the types of enterprises that do student housing deals? Sure. And, and this really, um, this new wave um, started back in, in the early nineties um, with uh, both a, a privatization of, of student housing and, and developing these um much more uh, plush housing accommodations where, um, as I like to joke, some of these college students, you know, their dorm is gonna be the, the nicest uh, apartment they're gonna have for probably the next decade. Yes. Um, <laughs> but so in, in the student housing realm, you really have three different types of borrowers. 
Um, and each of these borrowers um, would necessarily follow a different restructuring path. Um, so I think it's important to, to go through the, the three that, um, that we've identified. Um, for example, if you have the university, the traditional university borrower, um, the, the college or, or um, university is, is the actual borrower for this project, um, it's important to recognize that a college or university is, is essentially prohibited from filing bankruptcy um, because of the Higher Education Act, which provides that any institution that files for a bankruptcy petition um, is instantly ineligible to provide students with federal grants or loans. So a bankruptcy filing is an immediate ban for any college or university on, on Title IV programs, and thus it's essentially an act of suicide. So you're never going to have you know, a chapter 11 restructuring of a college or university um, because of the federal grant issues. Um, thus, if you've got a university borrower, um, you're really looking at an out of court um, restructuring, which more often than not involves either recapitalization um, or a potential sale of the property um, or the university um, in its entirety in the most dire situations. Um, then if you have a borrower that is the private developer and, and that is really, you know, it's the, the private sector that came in as I was discussing um, in the 90s to start to develop these um, much more um, posh um, student housing uh, buildings. Um, the private developer could restructure under chapter 11 of the bankruptcy code, but it's important to recognize that the developer and the property would likely be treated as a single asset real estate bankruptcy. Um, and that has um, its own you know, significant um, meaning within bankruptcy, a single asset real estate um, project is defined under the bankruptcy as a single property um, that generates substantially all of the debtor's gross income. Um, and so once there is a single asset real estate determination, um, these chapter 11 cases uh, typically move much faster than a traditional chapter 11, specifically because of bankruptcy code provisions um, that require the single asset debtor to um, file a plan of reorganization um, that has a reasonable possibility of being confirmed um, essentially within 90 days of the filing of the case, or it's required to start making its monthly payments to the secured lender with the loan's non-default contract rate. Um, and then if the debtor actually fails to file um, this plan, then the lender would be granted relief from the automatic stay to either begin or continue with its foreclosure action. So um, just important to remember there, the single asset real estate case does progress quite quickly. Um, and then finally, the um, you can also have student housing bonds that are issued through conduit financing um, through a public quasi-governmental authority um, which may, depending on state law, be entitled to avail itself of Chapter 9, a municipal bankruptcy. And I believe we're going to talk more about municipal bankruptcies um, later on, but I just wanted to note here that, that that's another consideration, and it's important to understand at the outset whether or not your borrower 
is entitled to avail itself of chapter nine um, under state law guidance. Yeah, the thing I just want to add a little bit, and going back to your first point about universities, you know, if, if a university is going to finance itself its own project, it's typically going to do that with its own general revenue debt, which is backed by, I don't want to say full faith and credit, but it's backed by tuition, it's backed by um, room and board, any kind of rental or concession income that it gets. So there's a far larger pool of resources that the university can draw from to support a project. Um, and Mike, can you talk a little bit just in general? Uh, about P3s and maybe their relationships with universities and how they work and how sometimes they might not work. Sure. So the, the P3 financings uh, and the student housing deals we see um, generally are insulated from the university. And um, the, the credit support is uh, usually um, the security interest in the property and a pledge of revenues of the uh, housing project. And these are obviously attractive for the university um, because they're, you know, completely insulated from any risk of default. Um, nevertheless, what you do see in what um, in our reporting we we kind of see as a trend um, for um, projects that are doing okay and projects that are in kind of severe distress is, uh, you know, sometimes the university will uh, pledge support to the project, um, and it may not be um, a promise to repay the debt or to make any kind of um, debt service payments, um, but it could be um, something as simple as, you know, pledging to uh, market the property or um, lease some part of it. Um, there's a couple of deals. Uh, one, the first is the Providence, Oklahoma deal. Uh, Providence, a big name in the these P3 uh, student housing deals. And um, they built uh, a project in the University of Oklahoma. And um, there was litigation um, after the University of Oklahoma had a lease uh, for some commercial and parking space in the project, um, which was separate from the dorm, and then didn't renew. Um, and Providence was not happy with uh, the lease up of the, of the dorms. So um, essentially, they argued uh, the university um, backed out on promises and made false uh, misleading representations when encouraging Providence to build a specific type of dorm that wasn't going to be attractive to students. Um, and um, ultimately, um, the litigation was settled out of court um, and the bondholders kind of got out of the deal. And I think Seth will discuss that, you know, the resolution that a little bit later. Yeah, that was a complicated restructuring that involved um, kind of a, a movement of that project um, amongst a couple of different parties in order to finally effectuate what was an impairment of the bondholders. Um, one thing I do find interesting to point out about Providence, Oklahoma, Providence, Oklahoma is, um, yeah, the, the lease up was not really the university's responsibility from what I understand. They weren't there to really make sure that freshmen use that dormitory. Um, and now, you know, you fast forward to post restructuring. Now that the University of Oklahoma owns the project, they've now committed to making sure that freshmen actually go in and use that um, while not pushing freshmen to other dormitory, which they're probably going to end up um, tearing down. But we, we can get more into that deal. Are, are there any examples that come to mind where maybe the university did say, OK, we're going to support this project and we're going to make sure that it survives and students use sure. student housing? Yeah, sure. There's, a, there's another. Um kind of happier Provident deal uh, in Marymount University. 
Um, this is the Provident Boston project. And um, uh, that one, uh, the, the, the dorm was in distress and wasn't able to meet debt service uh, coverage requirements under the bond indenture. And the university stepped in and um, agreed with Provident and the bondholders that it would set up a supplemental reserve fund to, uh, in substance, top up whatever um, was left remaining after the project's cash, um, uh, you know, sufficient to um, uh, satisfy the bond, the obligations um, for debt service coverage. And there's a couple of things that are interesting about this deal. Um, the first is that, you know, there wasn't an agreement in place prior to this um, restructuring forbearance, forbearance agreement. Um, that would suggest Marymount was obligated to do it. Um, so there was a concession agreement in place uh, where Marymount agreed with the developer to um, do some marketing um, and kind of act as agent uh, for uh, lease payments from students. But um, explicitly, Marymount was not obligated to provide any debt service um, to bondholders. Um, the other, the other interesting thing that comes out of this deal is in the in the forbearance agreement, uh, the university, the bondholders, and um, uh, the developer all all agreed that they're going to work towards kind of thinking about um, changing the definition of eligible students to include you know non eligible residents. Sorry, to include non students. So work, workforce, low, you know, low-income housing, kind of whatever it takes to improve the net operating income of the project. Now that that's interesting that they decided to kind of come together and resolve the situation in a way where everybody was kind of happy, including local residents too, to open up um, the dormitory to perhaps non-students. Um, I do wonder how the students feel about that, but um, maybe that's for a separate conversation. Uh, all the things that we just discussed, um, whether or not there's an agreement between the university and bondholders and the developer, are all things that you can see um, when the deal comes to market um, in the primary market. So with that transition, let's go to the next slide and just take a look at how do we assess these deals? And to, to kick that conversation off, I just want to go over a couple of trends that we see in the primary market right now. Um, through the month of October, um, we've seen 12 deals representing about $650 million in total debt issued. Um, the spreads on that are, are fairly consistent. Um, and, and I'm using the, a triple B benchmark here because we saw with some of the larger deals that they were rated. A couple of them even had wraps, too. Um, that's interesting that bond insurance is getting more involved with high yield deals. Um, and then finally, though, it, it's important to note that half of these 12 deals, whether they're refundings and refinancings or new projects or expansions, um, they half of the deals were with universities that are experiencing enrollment declines. So what we have here is we have um, an increase in issuance over the past couple of years. And I, th I think just those numbers very broadly with 650 million in 2021, I want to say in 2020, there were four new financings with 178 million. And then prior to that in 2019, we are again looking at around 200 million in terms of issuance. So this year um, has clearly been uh, an outperformance compared to the previous two. 2020, I'm sure we can write off, obviously, because of the pandemic. But coming out of the pandemic, we've seen this sort of resurgence um, in, in 
universities and private developers trying to issue bonds for new projects. Um, some things to take a look at, a, a notable deal for us was the CHF uh, Davis. This is um, uh, affiliated with the University of California. This is one of the largest deals this year. Um, Davis was, uh, sorry, uh, um, UC was increasing enrollment. So that's a good thing. And this was a new project probably to accommodate a lot of those students. Um, Kristen, can you maybe talk a little bit about some of the provisions that you're seeing in the primary market concerning everything from covenants to concessions and relationships with developers, as well as enhancements um, for new deals? Sure. Um, I, I think, you know, one thing um, to note is that, um, you know, th this market is no different um, than the other markets that we're looking at. And um, thus the covenants here remain um, extremely light. Um, I think another observation is, um, you know, student housing is really reflects currently the haves and the have nots, um, where you've got, you know, like the UC Davis, that's a large university. Um, and, uh, and as you said, they have expanding um, uh, a student body and where we really are seeing the distress is not across this entire um, industry, but focused more on the, the smaller regional um, private universities um, that are being hit hardest by declining enrollment. Um, and, and they're, they're the, um, the institutions that are, are experiencing the most distress. Yeah, that, that, that is interesting is that not all of these deals are, of course, um, created equal at the outset. Um, Mike, can you break down maybe some of the characteristics that you've seen in terms of, you know, where those schools are maybe doing very well versus where they aren't? Are there any commonalities between those schools that perhaps would provide for future distressed student housing issues? Yeah, I mean, just just based on the names that we see that we're covering um, at Reorg, it's, it, you know, the distress deals are focused in the, as Kristen said, you know, regional kind of private non-elite colleges. Um, um, and which is also, you know, incidentally kind of where you see these P3 deals um, generally, right? Not, not schools with huge endowments that would support, you know, building a dorm or not, you know, large um, public universities. Um, and then another, you know, another couple of, shared characteristics is um, there's no university support and um, projects where there's no um, source of revenue other than the dorm. Um, some, some of these projects have parking deals and, and uh, you know, um, commercial space and things like that, um, which would support uh, debt service beyond just the, you know, student housing. Yeah, as we've seen with those, as, as you point out, Providence, Oklahoma, though, those leases are renewed um, oftentimes on a year-to-year -year basis. And when you have a 30-year bond <coughs> exposed to a year-to-year -year lease, that could be an issue. Um, Excuse yeah. me. Um, so on to the next slide with restructuring. Kristen, can you talk a little bit about the differences between Chapter 9 and Chapter 11? Sure. Thanks, Seth. I think that the differences here are, are significant and um, it's, uh, it's important to take some time to, to really um, consider the differences between a, a chapter nine and a chapter 11. You don't um, see as many chapter nines, but um, like we said before, you can 
um, see them in the student housing um, arena. And I think we're going to talk about one. Um, so, you know, first and foremost, um, in a chapter nine, only a municipality um, can file for chapter nine. And um, that's a political subdivision or public agency of the state. Um, so that's really um, determined by state law. Um, there is no involuntary chapter nine. So only um, that quasi-governmental entity can, can file um, for bankruptcy. They can't be put into bankruptcy. Um, in addition, a, um, a chapter nine debtor can't be converted to another, um, <coughs> a, another case, can't be converted to a chapter 11. Um, and um, in addition, only a chapter nine debtor has a right to file a plan. So there's, um, there's no ability to terminate exclusivity. Um, and, and that really, um, you know, that I think in and of itself drives the fact that chapter nine bankruptcies, for the most part, if you look at them, they last a lot longer than a chapter 11 because, you know, a chapter nine debtor is in full control. Of, the creditors don't have any leverage to, um, you know, terminate exclusivity or or, or um, force a plan to be filed, um, and really the a creditor's options are limited. Um, significantly, another important consideration in a Chapter Nine um, is that uh, the bankruptcy court is really constrained about what um, actions um, and oversight it has over the debtor. Um, which really ends up meaning that a chapter nine debtor um, can uh, do pretty much anything it wants um, without receiving court approval, which is you know, drastically different than a, a chapter 11 case. Um, most importantly, section 363 of the bankruptcy code is not incorporated um, into chapter nine. So a, a chapter nine debtor has no restrictions on the sale or use of its property. Um, and, uh, you know, or on the use of cash collateral. So um, as, as a lender at Chapter 9 um, can be a very difficult uh, place to be. I think with the cases that we've seen so far this year, Mike, um, Providence, Oklahoma, that was clearly an out-of-court restriction, although precipitated by some litigation. Midtown Campus, correct me if I'm wrong, that was a Chapter 11 and then we have Texas Student Housing Authority, um, which I believe was a chapter nine. Um, can you talk just very briefly about how these situations played out? Because it does seem that um, there's been, there was far more action and far more uh, a quick transaction with Providence, Oklahoma than there perhaps was in these other situations that wound up in court. Yeah, uh, the Texas Student Housing Authority is this sort of quasi municipality that uh, both administers scholarships to students in Texas and also has a, um, a dorm near uh, Texas A&M in College Station. And um, it filed for Chapter 9 bankruptcy in June. And uh, consistent with what Kristen was saying, it, it um, you know, filed no plan, no order for relief, um, nothing really until the fall. And um, its bond trustee, Bank New York Mellon, um, eventually moved to dismiss uh, the bankruptcy, saying, um, you know, among other things, that it wasn't it wasn't an eligible Chapter Nine debtor. And this is another unique thing that you'll see in Chapter Nines is creditors um, disputing the debtor's el eligibility. 
Um, and, um, you know, just this week, um, the debtor moved to voluntarily dismiss its own case. Um, some background there, I think the, the bond trustee and the debtor were in a, um, litigation in state court around uh, proper use of funds. Um, so no, nothing really happened in court, but it is just an, it's just an example of kind of how, how a chapter nine might play out. Um, on the flip side, uh, Midtown Campus Properties is a case we've been covering for some time. Um, and that is a project in Gainesville uh, near the University of Florida um, that was under construction and ran into problems um, finishing construction and filed uh, in, in early on and during the pandemic in May 2020. Um, it was a single asset real estate case, but it hasn't, um, it, it's still going on. And so um, you had a situation where um, I think the debtor ran up against uh, the realities of trying to construct a big high-rise uh, building in the pandemic and um, the court and maybe the bondholders and kind of everyone um, realized it was in, it was in everyone's interest to um, get this to the finish line. Uh, and um, there, the, the debtor does have a buyer. Um, a sale hearing is set up with an with an auction beforehand. Um, maybe it'll close by the end of the year. Um, just two two kind of interesting things about this about this case, and then I'll I'll kind of stop talking about it. But there was a dispute about um, uh, whether debt service reserve funds should be used, you know, that are held by the trustee should be used to satisfy the debtor's obligation as a single asset real estate debtor to pay current interest. Um, and that kind of gets to the question of whose funds are these, right, in, in a bankruptcy. Um, and there was some papers filed about it, but I don't, I don't think the, um, well, if everything, if everything goes well, there's not going to be a decision on it, um, but that was kind of a flashpoint. Um, and then I guess the, the only other point, which I, I kind of made already, is that notwithstanding single asset real estate rules, um, um, the, these these cases can kind of drag out. Okay. Um, Kristen, just uh, I guess in conclusion here for restructuring before we open it up for Q&A, um, what are some common traits, just some broad strokes that um, a, an investor can look into uh, very quickly when they're trying to understand what makes a deal go into bankruptcy? Um, sure. Um, you know, I, I think... Um, one thing to remember in the student housing sector um, is that these projects have a lot um, less ability to mitigate um, revenue reduction through expense reductions, which is right. That that's kind of the the first lever um, that we use in in any distress situation, um, and that's because you know as we've talked about, the majority um, of fixed costs are derived from principal and interest. Um, payment requirements. Um, so, you know, it's important to, to recognize here you, you, you don't have um, as large an ability to, to kind of go right to the expense reduction. Um, one other area, though, um, that I'll point out is, um, you know, unique to um, colleges and universities are, um, are these endowments um, and foundations. Um, and as Mike described, um, sometimes you do see, right, a guarantee or um, a, an obligation from, from the university. 
Um, but we've even seen times when absent a guarantee where the, um, the college or university has stepped up itself um, and utilized endowment funds um, in order to assist in restructuring some of these student housing bonds. Um, so that's another uh, important consideration. Okay. Um, well, I guess just uh, we'll move right now into Q&A and we have a few questions in the pipeline here. Um, the first one kind of deals with the uh, primary market. It, it asks, with enrollment declines, can you talk a little bit about the deal pipeline? The trend seems to point toward more deals, so are schools expanding their housing offerings despite fewer students? Um, yeah, I, I think when, when we talk about new deals, um, oftentimes what we see is universities uh, building new housing to replace legacy assets. Um, this, this goes to the broader theme of just U.S. infrastructure um, being woefully underfunded um, over the past few decades. And I think that, you know, if you look at Providence, Oklahoma, a good example, um, they already had some initiatives to replace some of their legacy dormitories. And when things with uh, Cross Village Housing Project, which is the Providence, Oklahoma project, um, seemed to run aground, uh, they, they acted like your typical distressed investor, I think, and, and swooped in and picked up that asset. And now they don't have to rebuild their former dormitories uh, in, in terms of deals where that are essentially brand new, looking to accommodate an expanded student base. I think the only one that I saw this year so far was UC Davis. Um, but clearly, I, I think that um, when universities are looking at enrollment declines, what they're, what they're essentially looking at is how do we stay competitive in getting as many students into our door as possible? And the amenities provided for in these student housing projects, as, as Kristen pointed out early on in the presentation, um, these are very nice places. Um, they have their own bathrooms. I, I, I didn't have my own shower or bathroom when I was in dormitory. So I think that the living conditions for students have evolved over time as students, as, as universities become more competitive for them. Um, <clears throat> the next question is, uh, what are the restructuring triggers for student housing? So what ultimately pushes a debtor into bankruptcy? Kristen, do you think you can field that one? Yeah, I mean, as we've been talking about, right, um, uh, the, the, the student headcount um, is first and foremost, and, and that's, you know, the single biggest um, driver here with these housing projects, because no matter you know what what type of financing it is, um, they're all relying on the student rent payments um, to support the principal and interest. So you know necessarily less students means less rent, um, and the revenue to bonds is declining. So I mean that's first and foremost. And again, as as we talked about, um, right, this is um, this is very much a divided segment between the haves and the have-nots. Um, so it, this is an issue, you know, that's felt much more strongly on the, the smaller regional schools. Your answer reminds me, Kristen, that even with a student housing project at a university that is um, doing well, like, like a UC Davis, um, that particular project could still run into trouble once you expand your analysis to look at um, alternatives for student housing. So if you're an upperclassman, and you don't want to be in that dormitory, you want to live locally where maybe the rents are cheaper. That's something to also put into that analysis too. And I'd say that maybe some of the triggers for restructuring is, is looking at the market and saying, we can't compete with the local market. Our students want to move off campus. 
No, that's that's certainly true. I think you know it's a generalized real estate analysis um, by that in that area as well, right? And you know how much support the university is willing to provide um, in terms of requiring the students to utilize that housing. Okay. Um, next question is with regard to uh, P3s. Have you looked at recent examples where underperforming P3 projects are bought back by the university? Example: Texas A&M. Um, uh, I mean, I have some thoughts with regard to the, the Provident, Oklahoma deal. I think that was a good example. Um, my thought on that is, uh, universities, uh, particularly large ones are, are very sophisticated. Um, you know, their, their treasurer's office and their CFOs, um, they know what they're buying, um, and they want to buy things like anybody else who manages assets want to buy. They want to buy it for cheap. I mean, if you just look at the the cap rates for University of Oklahoma, when they built that project in 2017, 2018, the implied cap rate based upon the cost of the project was around five or six percent. Fast forward to their transaction where they picked up the the project for 180 million, the cap rate is closer to eight or nine. Um, and treasurers know this. Um, any other examples that you can think of, like Texas A&M, Mike? I'm not too familiar with that one. Um, no, I just the, the, the Provident Oklahoma deal is kind of the one that comes to mind, like you said. Okay. Um, next question. How do you think schools will mitigate the challenge of decreasing student enrollment with potential students likely wanting to see lower tuition prices? Um, it's a hard one. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, I was going to say the so far, you know, the the one creative solution that that we saw um, was this concept of opening up um, the student housing to um, the community and and folks outside the student population. Um, I think that remains to be seen if that is actually a successful solution. And like you said, Seth, what the the students will ultimately feel about that. But um, I think it's going to require some sort of creative solutions um, like that, recognizing that, you know, at bottom, these are essentially apartments, right? That, that mm -hmm. could be rented to anyone. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to point out here, the, the shakeup that the COVID-19 has brought into the real estate markets, people no longer are, are, are living in, in urban areas and they're moving out because they know that they can work, you know, from home or remotely. And maybe that's maybe that's one way that universities can support their project or housing projects can support their project is essentially saying, you know, in, including those units into um, the housing inventory that might really lack in certain areas. Um, it's important, too. That's a good point. Yeah, and another, just another detail on that, Seth, um, we saw with, I think it was Ryder um, College in New Jersey, that um, the university provided student support um, after they all had to kind of go home and not live in the dorm anymore in the form of um, coupons or rebates for the tuition they already paid um, during 2020-2021. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, that's another example, but that's, you know, support going from the university to the students, not to the developer, mm -hmm. um, and likely only a kind of a one-shot deal. Okay. Yeah. Um, I also think, you know, on the, the lower tuition prices, one thing that, you know, I think is important to remember when you're looking at, at, um, at college and university, um, borrowing generally is this notion that um, student loans are still non-dischargeable in a consumer bankruptcy. 
And so when you think about that, student loans are literally the only obligation that a consumer cannot shed um, in filing a bankruptcy. And, and so, you know, as the cost of tuition has risen, you know, I think that really can play into the cost benefit analysis. This is a cost um, that these students are, are going to be, you know, stuck with for, uh, for the rest of their lives if they can't repay it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um... I mean, ultimately, the student housing is supported by the students themselves. And if they decide that it's just not worth it, um, you know, how do you entice that? I mean, lowering tuition prices, lowering room and board prices. But of course, all of this affects your credit quality negatively. Um, we will end with one last question. Uh, at the beginning of the call, uh, Kristen mentioned a rule about Title IV programs and the impact on a university when they have a bankruptcy filing. Could she explain this again? My sound cut out a little bit during that explanation. Sure, sure. sure. It, um, it, the Higher Education Act provides um, that a an institution um, that files a bankruptcy petition, the moment they file that petition, um, they're instantly ineligible to provide their students um, with federal grants and loans. Um, so that was the point that a bankruptcy filing is immediate is an immediate ban on that university's access to Title IV programs. Um, and, and so for that reason, you'll, you'll hear colleges and universities can't file bankruptcy and, and they, they can, except that it would you know, result in, in them ultimately um, having to immediately cease business. Yeah, their student, their student body would just evaporate, it sounds like. Yes. Um, okay, and then what deal trends do you expect in 2022? Uh, Great question. Um, we just have an infrastructure bill come in. Who knows how that helps out? Uh, we have a Build Back Better program that comes in, which could directly affect issuance in 2022. Uh, I think we still have to wait to see what goes on with the reopening. We're still not quite stabilized following the pandemic. Um, I, that said, I don't think all of this goes away once we do go back to normal. Um, this is an evolution. So I guess we'll have to stay tuned. Um, and with that, thank you everybody for joining us. Um, we hope that you learned a lot and I'm sure we'll be back with another webinar series soon. Take care. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe and enjoy the holidays. The podcast will be taking a brief holiday hiatus, but we'll be back early next year with more news and in-depth analysis.